welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Coda Payments. Game developers building their free-to-play monetization strategy have a daunting task when considering security, payment methods, user experience, and global expansion. I'm here today with Neil Davidson, Executive Chairman at Coda Payments. Neil, how has Coda Payments helped games teams drive greater success? We like to say we help mobile game developers think outside the app when it comes to monetization. That's because outside the app, they can collect payments from their players at half the cost or less of doing so through the app stores. Coder Shop is our global marketplace for game currency and in-game items, trusted by tens of millions of gamers around the world. And developers that want to accept payments outside the app on their own websites can use Coda Pay, which allows them to support hundreds of local payment methods globally with a single integration. Whether our partner leverages Coda Pay, Coda Shop, or any of our other solutions, we offer local market insights, provide live local language customer support, ensure tax compliance, and manage fraud risks. If your listeners are interested in retaining more of the revenue they generate, I hope they'll get in touch with us at Coda. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Neil. And if you, our listener, are interested in learning more about how Coda Payments solutions can take your game to the next level, head to codapayments.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the weekly roundtable. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Evan Becker. And with me, I have great panelists as always. Uh, as you all know by now, the ever lively Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik here, Sebastian Park, co-founder of Infinite Canvas, and Dave Elton, president of Blue Line Studios. How are you guys doing today? Great. I'm having a lot of fun. A lot of, lot of fun. <laughs> Tell us about how you are starting to to preach to the Gen Zers, Seb. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think you've probably heard me talk um, ad nauseum about LinkedIn and how I actually think like, basically the, t- the TLDR is everything's on Twitter. We want to move things away from Twitter because Twitter as a form factor doesn't uh, get knowledge across as well. LinkedIn has been great if you want to talk to an audience that's millennial or older. And, but it's not really talking to folks who are Gen Z. It's not really talking to more uh, people who are on different channels. And so I launched a TikTok and YouTube shorts channel, which is a ton of fun. So you can find me on TikTok at Seb Park Gaming and on YouTube at Seb Park and basically doing a lot of, you know, like 60 second rundowns of gaming, gaming venture and startups, which is always a ton of fun. So where can people find that? Just to be clear. Yeah. So tiktok.com slash at sign Seb Park Gaming and then youtube.com slash Seb Park, I think. I it's it's a work in progress in terms of the links. <laughs> we'll 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 have it all aggregated on like my personal website in the next few weeks. Perfect. Few days, few hours. Perfect. Well, maybe we can get that in the, the show notes in this episode <laughs> or one of the what are the upcoming ones. But uh, yeah, thanks. And hopefully that's gonna lead to some longer form content as well, and not just 60 second stuff, huh? Yeah, I love long-form content, but Devin, I don't have the gift of gab without Aaron or you on the call. So I, I, well, at I least know. you have an hour every every few weeks. So right. we got you for that. 
Cool. Well, we have some good topics to dive into today, as usual, especially the ever uh, classic FTC Microsoft deal and uh, some updates, interesting updates on that. Uh, threads and Final Fantasy XVI's number comparison. That should be fun to dig into for a minute. And uh, some stuff around classic video game archiving and problems that they're running into, which are, I guess were no surprise. Uh, and generative AI, a topic we love to talk about a lot, hitting the news again for some legal stuff that we'll get into. And uh, with, with that being said, everyone's favorite favorite topic. Let's just get it out of the way first. Aaron, what's going on with the FTC and Microsoft? The saga continues, but it finally looks to be coming to a close. So this past week, the judge that was presiding over the FTC versus Microsoft case decided to not uphold the FTC's block of the deal, ensuring that the deal can now go through in the U.S. as soon as in the next few days. So technically, that's big news. Technically, the FTC can still appeal the decision and Microsoft still needs to deal with the U.K.'s CMA. Uh, somehow, but FTC them appealing would be pretty pointless since their case proved to be weak in court. And we're already hearing from the CMA um, in the UK that they and Microsoft are opening up discussions again. Maybe, maybe it'll lead to some small divestment. Maybe they'll still just be a pain in the ass, and Microsoft will close the deal anyways and deal with them later. I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, over over the Atlantic and the the UK. Um, in the next few days, maybe there'll be an update before, you know, in between we're talking now and when this episode goes live, that's likely to. Um, but really, this court decision is the straw that breaks the camel's back. The deal can happen now. Um, and Activision stock shot up much closer to the acquisition price as a result. So the market is, you know, really viewing this as a done deal, as a done deal. Um, so a couple quick reflections on this now that we are right around at the finish line, zooming out and then zooming in. So first is that this is a big blow to the FTC, uh, but also not its first uh, by a long shot. Um, and so the current administration has you know, at least in my view, but I think it's a shared view with, with many that there have been operating at least somewhat out of ideology that big is bad. And a lot of the weak arguments that they've been bringing to courts um, have been failing and quickly dismantling its reputation, especially, um, or at least of the commissioner, Lena Khan. So we'll keep an eye on the FTC. And, you know, there might be some changes there. Uh, and, you know, the months and years ahead. We shall see. But second, despite the FTC's antics, the system actually worked in the end when a neutral court stepped in um, and they looked at the evidence and made a final call. So that's good. Third, what's notable about this is that it might actually embolden and empower other companies to make M&A moves that they would have been hesitant to prior. And I think this is true in tech and media. But I think it might also be true in games because after all, if Microsoft, the behemoth, and Activision, one of the largest publishers, are allowed to combine, then pretty much any other combination you can think of, it's hard to see there being um, too much in the way once this precedent is is set. Is set. So my guess is that some of that this in some roundabout way could actually lead to more thinking and diligence around larger MA, especially some of these like platforms think about their futures and think about exclusives at yet another um, level of scale and think about just growing out and competing uh, for the, the next era of console specifically, but potentially even beyond that too. Um, 
So, so those are my quick reflections. And now that the deal is 95% done, maybe like 99% done, I think it's just time to raise different questions now. And the, num- the number one question I think we have to ask um, is specifically about Game Pass, but more broadly about subscriptions. And it's the question of whether large-scale subscription models uh, will compete against the traditional a la carte model in a way that's net positive or net negative for both players, but mm-hmm. especially the video game industry at large. And so I want to hear your thoughts, but to do this, maybe maybe let's play a quick game. I just want to try something out, a little bull versus bear here. And so here's how it's going to work. Um, um, you'll... So yeah, here's how it will work. We'll hold basically sideways thumbs up to the camera. And when I say three, two, one, go, on go, you'll give me a thumbs up if you're bullish on subscriptions being um, value additive to the games industry, a thumbs down if you think it will detract value, or if you honestly have no idea, you can still go with a thumb sideways. Um, and then I'm curious. I'm just curious to see where everybody lands, and then we can maybe discuss that question a little bit. Does that make sense to everyone? <laughs> awesome. Thumbs up. All right. Well, let me see those those sideways thumbs. So, will the will the subscription model at scale be value additive or value detractive to the games industry over the next three years? And three, two, one, go. Ooh, okay. So we got we're half and half here. For those on audio that aren't seeing seeing the YouTube video here, uh, me and Devin went thumbs down, and Seb and Dave were were a sideways. Don't know TBD. Um, maybe maybe Devin, I'll start with you since it's it's more of a firmer opinion to take a, like a bigger thumbs down or up stance. Why do you think it'll be value detractive? And then we'll hear from Seb and Dave on why they still got some questions. Yeah. First off, I, w- I want to say it was a very reluctant uh, thumbs down in that I don't want it to be true because I actually am a huge fan of subscription gaming. I've been using stuff since like, uh, it was like tap game or so on tap. So like those kind of subscription gamings that have been around for a long time, Gamefly and everything else. I'm a huge consumer of these products. So like I'm someone who's been using them as, as far as I know, as long as they've existed, at least digitally, like online. And so it makes me sad to say that unfortunately, I think they they skew uh, game development too much towards the wrong things where I've even seen like um, Apple Arcade games come out of that sort of thing where they go from being on Apple Arcade to coming out and like they don't know how to transition properly like they didn't have the same like uh, design constraints that you need for designing a game for the real world business wise and and all those sorts of problems that you need to work around and you don't have the same like uh, audience feedback in the terms of like purchases and stuff like that to see what really works. So I think it's just, it skews design so much that if it, if it becomes too big, it's a thumbs down. If it's a smaller thing and like, doesn't affect, a, you know, like doesn't become a malignant tumor, then I think, yeah, okay. It could be a, it could be a sideways thumb. And so that's my big problem is that it just, it just changes game incentives uh, for design and business just, just too much to, to not be potentially a negative. Right, Dave. I'm curious. What what was with your your sideways view? What are your what are your questions or or holdups still? Um, well, as both a consumer and someone who's made content for subscription services, uh, I think I can probably speak to a few different angles here. Um, I personally love my Xbox Game Pass, being able to try out uh, a wide variety of games, try games that I most likely wouldn't be, uh, you know 
plopping down on the counter, a huge amount of money to, to, to actually play. Um, so it's an opportunity for me and, and my family to try a whole bunch of different games that I don't think we, we normally would just because the availability. Um, from the game developer side, uh, it does it. It certainly has its its pluses and minuses right now. Um, you know, very much enjoyed working with uh, the partners in terms of the subscription games that I've worked on. Um, and there's some great ecosystems there. But you have the plus as a developer in that um, you are going to be receiving some money for what you've done. It's not like you are putting a whole bunch of your own money into a game, throwing it out there in a free-to-play environment, crossing your fingers that you're going to get some revenue back. You know that you are, at, at the very least, going to be you're, you're in net out here. You're going to be able to pay your bills in terms of generating that game. The downside, however, is that you never have that opportunity of if you create like the best game, the game that everyone loves, everyone's playing, everyone's super much enjoying, the likelihood that you'll be able to participate in the upside of that, uh, unfortunately, is is not really there. Um, there is, I think, a lot of pluses in terms of being having that visibility, uh, regardless if it's uh, you know uh, Apple Arcade, Netflix, uh, Xbox Game Pass, or, or any other subscription service. Um, and uh, and you know some some companies have said that they've seen the knock on effects of having uh, better sales because of having that visibility. You know, in some ways it's, it's free marketing being part of that, but um, you know there there's always the question of if going onto the onto one of those. Um, uh, subscription services have you limited what your potential is for the game that you've uh, spent so much time uh, lovingly crafted uh, for the consumers so uh, as a consumer i absolutely love it um, as part of the video games business uh, it's certainly got its pluses and minuses sebastian serious yeah i so one of the things that is unrelated is that i suffered a concussion like a month ago and the thing that really sucked during that recovery period, which I'm still going through, is you couldn't keep multiple thoughts in your head at the same time. It was just a major header. And so that sucked. Whereas now I, I feel the recovery because I can keep multiple thoughts. One thing that I'll start by saying is that I probably should have done this. I should have done both as opposed to not knowing. I think there it's definitely not an uncertainty, right? To take it from the top, I don't disagree with the FTC's approach of trying to break up big companies. I think that's really important. A lot of the things that Dave is hitting on right there in terms of how does this affect the independent studios, how does this affect people creating things is a function of monopolistic action. It's a function of people being too large to scale. I didn't believe in the merits of the Activision at Microsoft case. We've talked extensively about it. Like it's entertainment as a core seems really hard to have plurality or anything that looks like a supermajority such that you would want to break it up. Now, there is an argument from the FTC side that that shouldn't be our bar. That It used to be like 100 years ago, our bar was like 10%, 20%, 30%. It was a freaking lot. We should start breaking it up then. And especially as we're starting to see more scaling. And that's especially as we're starting to see more integration. I agree that one would hope that the FTC would become better and would start breaking these things up. With regards to subscriptions in particular, I think, Devin, your point is super interesting, which is that you know some of these game subscription games suck. 
And that, by the way, I actually don't think is a negative against subscriptions. What I will say is that one, I, one thing I've seen time and time and again, and this is true not only for people who are coming up in the industry, but for everyone, it is just hard to switch your mindset to start thinking about designing for a different ecosystem. If you spend your entire life making AAA uh, console games, it gets, it's really hard to make games with in-app purchases free-to-play. If you spend your entire career in life making in-app purchase free-to-play games, it's, it's actually pretty hard to make games for subscriptions. I actually do think there is a lucrative and robust subscription game model that allows for types of games that appeal to a cohort of people that we haven't seen. A great example of this is that you, if it's a pure subscription game-based system without any in-app purchases whatsoever, the type of game you're making is so different than it is if it's a AAA $70 box game or if it's a free-to-play mobile game where I have about two seconds to convince you to play this game for another 10 seconds and another like 30 seconds to convince you that's worth paying money for that experience. I think that design constraint is different. And so I don't think that subscription games being a thing is a negative. Now, I will say, and then I think this is the thing that is concerning. It is incredibly concerning because if you look at Steam right now and you look at Apple Arcade, the biggest difference you'll see is that Apple Arcade is full of IP. The, it's the Super Evil Megacorp guys doing t- uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's another implementation of Hogwarts Legacy. It's another thing that we already know. The beauty of games historically has been that people can create new IP. Now, this is a huge double-edged sword. On one hand, it's a determined model of success, meaning for every person who's been successful and able to make games for a living, there's hundreds of people who fail horrendously, like sort of disastrously. For every, there's a great story of four friends making Phoenix Age, which sold to Kabam, and they put a bunch of debt on their credit cards. And I remember talking to those guys and being like, you should never share this story because you guys got lucky. Everyone else is going to wake up in their 30s with like hundreds of thousands of dollar credit card debt and no way to get out of it under it, right? And so I think Dave's point that the subscription model is really as a game creator weird, it's, is that it creates this weird imbalance in terms of revealed and stated ecosystems. I think everyone is a revealed person saying that they wanted the gaming industry to be sustainable, no crunch, nine-to-five business that allows people to produce art. But the reality of it is, is that the game industry is not geared that way. It's geared towards making hits because we're a hits-driven entertainment industry. I don't think that's going to change. I don't think it should change in a lot of ways. And if that's the case, that inherently means that models where monopolistic action happens, where people have to be um, subservient to a subscription system by uh, like a megalith, is one that removes that upside. And so you have all the downside of being a musician, basically, without any of the upside of the tail upside of becoming oh, like Foo Fighters. That is a bad EB equation. And often when you have bad EB equations, it tends to effectively take advantage of people who love the art and craft for the art and craft. I want to throw one twist in real quick too before, before you jump back in, Aaron. Uh, and that's the cloud gaming factor which is that when you're talking about being able to try all these different games and stuff like that, imagine if when you went on Netflix, every time you wanted to watch a new show, you had to download the entire new show or movie before you could start watching it. That's what it's like when it's all like download-based and like Microsoft leaning into the cloud side as well, I think is an important 
factor in these discussions around subscription-based services because you saw even like google like realizing with with free-to-play stuff on mobile that like they started pushing towards that like instant play stuff and trying to make it like as accessible as possible facebook tried to do the same thing like people realize like the speed of trying these things out that that sort of like still having that sort of two seconds to hook you sort of thing you mentioned uh, sebastian is like that's still a factor in these when you're flipping channels essentially Mm -hmm. uh between these games if it takes 20 minutes to download each one of those to flip between them like your tolerance for bad games is going to be pretty different uh, I, think, I, and I think the factors in I, I realize i didn't say any original points here's my actual original points on on this topic aaron which is really straightforward uh we're it doesn't matter what we think in terms of what's happening it's clear just from looking at the world that this is this like a lot of upcoming technology is like the mpaa it's very much like music the days of $90 CD record sales where we sent 20 million albums because we're Backstreet Boys is almost certainly coming to an end. Not exactly sure when. Hopefully we can eke out some more Metallica albums between this and, and, and then retire off into the sunset. But just even listening to people on this call, it's clear that subscriptions are something that people really enjoy, really love. And that means almost certainly that the the world that we've lived in historically is is ended. I I wouldn't say that's ended. I I mean I, I'm sorry. I, I think it'll I think it'll end up being an additive versus a, a replacement. Um, yeah, I think we'll, same as like same as you know you know mobile games coming in didn't kill PC and console. NFT Web three is not going to kill Web two games. Uh, I, I think it'll be additive. I mean, and I think there are certainly going to be some uh, some growing pains as people try and figure out what actually works. Like if you think of like the MMO business today, mm-hmm. you know, how many of them are actually subscription-based versus free-to-play? You know, back in the days of, you know, when World of Warcraft was kicking off, all of them were subscription-based. Now, you know, you're most likely going to find them as, as more free to play than you are going to find them as a subscription base. So I think there's certainly going to be uh, a number of people that are well, going to try and figure it out. But um, I, in my personal opinion, I think it's going to be additive rather than replacing. Yeah, I think you're both right in a sense. And I, I think you're totally right about what you're saying about in some ways it is going to be additive. But even in Seb, I think you're right. And just like how we count, right? Like, <laughs> like the number of units sold. Well, Units won't be sold anymore in a bunch of cases. They'll just be part of a subscription. So, like the new normal of how we even view like sales data, it's just going to be a wonky, weird hybrid world that's just going to be maybe a bit harder to make sense of until the industry kind of decides to lean one way or you know revert back to the other. Um, So, yeah, interesting thoughts. I will say, um, (laughs) yeah, my thumb went slightly slightly negative it also was kind of hesitant because honestly i just think that whether subscription is a net positive or net negative for the games industry it's not set in stone yet like a lot of it boils down to just how game pass in particular is managed and whether or not other companies you know learn from it and try to do their own their own things at like a different level of scale too and some of that could take a lot of time to play out or not but i just don't think it's set in stone um, and just sort of as an analogy, I know there's a million differences between the like the video streaming market and the video game market, but I think it still is worth looking at how the economics of video changed when online subscriptions took over. And I think there's a couple lessons there. On one hand, 
When the streaming wars took off and multiple companies jumped into the arena, it became expensive to compete. Scaling content in a subscription model is already expensive and often, uh, you know, like companies have to take on debt or raise money in some kind of way to just fuel content ambitions to make that possible, which then gets paid back over time when, uh, when it leads to new subscribers coming on. But scaling content and then competing on user acquisition has made the economics of subscriptions as a whole and streaming uh, way worse than cable before it. And so when that business, in some way, it turned from one type of subscription to another. So it's not even a, it's not a perfect comparison. But when like this new watch anywhere, stream anywhere subscription model with a big library of content um, came in, it did make the economics of that industry worse. And I don't think it's the only industry where that happened. But on the other hand, um, what you see at the big picture level is not necessarily what you see at the company level. And at a company level, results in video streaming have ranged wildly. Because on one hand, uh, or just like on one side of the spectrum, is a company like Netflix, which now generates billions of dollars in cash flow and is actually very profitable when you look at it from a cash flow standpoint that still is going to scale. And then you have a company like Warner Bros. Discovery now which is just very smart about managing LTV and knows how to make decisions about what content to keep on its own platform, what to license, what to send to theaters, et cetera. Um, and you could kind of make that analogy with gaming. Like some of these big companies are just going to have to think about like, what, what do we add to our subscription? What do we make exclusive? What do we put where or have like, you know, release windows for? And so I think there are smart ways to think about the LTVs there that maybe teams will have to think through best practices when it comes to how it relates to subscriptions. But there are levers to pull, good and bad. And then on the other side of the spectrum are projects like Peacock and Paramount Plus that just don't have profits in sight anywhere and don't seem to have an eye on their burn rates at all and um, uh, are going to have to like make really hard decisions or merge together somehow. And that's going to continue to... to uh, you know, change the face of like the video streaming market. Um, and so, you know, whether it's a win for uh, whether the subscription model is a win for a specific company is honestly just up to their judgment and execution. It's about whether they can cost effectively produce hits that spark conversion, whether they have the right library of hits, of long tail content, of whatever in between to maintain engagement of that audience and and maintain, you know, and hopefully, or hopefully increase retention rates. Um, and, you know, hopefully through doing that and having a head start, there's some inv- advantage in UA and they're able to reinvest into improving just like the user experience and all the, the features and tooling throughout it over time. So there's a lot, there's a lot to it. But the math of the economics changes when it's not about an upfront sale or an upfront sale and then add-ons or even just free to play. It's about just the subscription and keeping people paying that fixed dollar amount um, as long as possible, maybe with some extra upsells, um, you know, here here and there too. But I think that uh, it's honestly up in the air, and whether it's a win for the industry is more of a value chain question. Um, and I I think that um, I don't think subscription will take over gaming like it did in video, at least in the same kind of pace, or lead to the same kinds of just like industry wide losses. It's possible. I just don't really see the PlayStations and Nintendos of the world and the other big platforms making that leap alongside Game Pass anytime soon. But it is worth doing the math to see how 
funds flow to the other participants in the ecosystem, like the developers and publishers, where, as has been mentioned here, I think it could cap upside um, and, and the biggest scenarios. And that enough could be a reason to be value destructive to the largest companies in the industry and raise um, some some questions. So I guess we'll see. Uh, I guess we'll see where it heads uh, and some of how those hard questions shake out. But um, I think it's going to be one of like the defining questions for the industry of the next decade. So thanks for bearing with me and talking that through. Yeah, I think I think one thing we can all conclude from that is that that change is coming uh, to an extent, regardless, as it always has with everything, and that there will be good and bad things that come out of it. I think that's the the, the mo- in, in some ways the most useless take, but also probably the most true, right? Uh, just the most mild one. But in the meantime, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on that. And since we're week to week, of course, we'll be observing those trends as we see them coming and hopefully stay ahead of them as much as possible so you guys can stay ahead as well, at least on the, the business side of that that sort of a spectrum to get an idea where that's going. But looking at the business side and numbers and things like that, we had a little bit of a topic we wanted to explore around like kind of unit numbers and, and stuff in, in some abstract ways, I think, if you want to dig into that, Sebastian. Yeah, this is actually pretty apropos to the conversation we just had about how streaming is going to shift things around. But one of the two big headline numbers that came out this past week were one, uh, Meta, Facebook's, Threads, which is technically still a part of Instagram. It's it's complicated, but Threads, the new Twitter killer, hit 100 million users in like four days, uh, which is a huge number and super interesting to think about. At the same time, there have been protests and anger in the Japanese Final Fantasy community about them only selling 3 million copies of Final Fantasy in a week and that there being like an 82% drop-off week over week in terms of sales. It is so mind-boggling how we come to this, in part because, for the most part, what you should know is that a priority to everything, we all have different metrics for success, depending on what we do for a living and what we what type of game or what type of product we're putting out. I have a good friend who works on a tech platform, a B2B tech platform that's built on top of Snowflake, and they have like 100 customers. If I only had 100 customers for any of our games, that's just a failing game. The flip side is 3 million copies of Final Fantasy 16 at 70 bucks a pop. Like, like Devin, Aaron, Dave, how many PS5s have been sold? <laughs> like, I'm, I actually don't know. Like, that seems like a large percentage of every PlayStation 5 user, as far as I can tell. Like, people don't have a really good idea of how to judge, uh, judge the numbers in comparison. Just relative value is king, right? Where it's just, uh, I mean, like I saw comparisons for the Threads one, for example, compared to ChatGPT, right? Because everyone was excited about the the super fast uptake of ChatGPT with just huge numbers, and they and at that time they were comparing that to Netflix, right? Like, mm-hmm. so there's always this like relative comparison of like what's the nexus. So the question that I have, Sebastian, is like, what then should we be comparing Final Fantasy 16's numbers to? The, the way, you know, like you may compare threads to Twitter or threads to ChatGPT, like what's the metric besides just previous Final Fantasies, which is what obviously sounds mm-hmm. negative when you when you go that direction. Yeah, I mean, I don't think here, here's a bad comparison. You probably shouldn't compare it to Tears of the Kingdom, which seems to be a Twitter hot take right now. They're like, oh, you know, Tears of the Kingdom, the greatest selling console game of all time did, did you know, X, X times more. Uh, I think the honest answer is for Final Fantasy 16, this is my personal take, which is that they had a budget over a six-year period of development. 
And if you crush that budget and you are making multiples on that budget, which they very clearly will, I think that's a success. I think, honestly, a lot of these AAA games are a lot like movies. The question we have to ask is, is Oppenheimer a success, right? Did it beat the, the, beat the budget of the movie? How is its box office in total? And how well is it received by critics? And that seems to be the world Final Fantasy sixteen is playing. And if that's the case, huge success. Putting it out there, it's a big success. I think one of the other questions is, uh, who is the game designed for? Was it designed for the Japanese market or was it designed for a worldwide market? And I think as you start looking at you know, uh, games trying to reach a, a broader audience or broader set of marketplaces that they'll change. They'll try to adjust to the different markets, um, especially, you know, not just geographically, but over time players change. And that may be a reflection of, uh, you know, how the game was, uh, how the game was marketed, you know, what the direction was for core gameplay and that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely agree with your point. It's like, there aren't that many PS5s still out in the, in the marketplace. Um, so yeah, if they if you look at it from a percentage of how many PlayStation 5 owners have purchased Final Fantasy, probably see it's still a pretty high uptake. It's probably gearing up towards 10% now, I would guess. Maybe not quite that much, but that still is a, a pretty good, pretty good attach rate that is may go up you know over the next month or so also like i don't even think that they had with with the sales numbers had started selling on other platforms yet that was just ps5 where they have an exclusive window but it's not exclusive exclusive forever um so yeah did that include uh digital because that's the other effect that you know if you compare when the last final fantasy came out that was probably gonna be almost entirely box product versus today there's such a large percentage it's digital sales versus packaged goods it's it's a good question i think i'd imagine it's probably both but i i don't know i think it's something worth reflecting back on i, I also think just to put uh, to put a pin on it like final fantasy 16 i think dave's point on audience targeting is really interesting that is i i'm i've been told game of thrones is not big outside of the western markets <laughs> and so Given that this game, I don't know if any of you guys have played Final Fantasy 16. For those of you out there who have, you'll probably know what I'm saying. This game definitely has some very strong Game of Thrones vibes as opposed to Journey to the West or anime vibes. And so given that, you're right. Like This target audience seems far better Western than, than any of the Eastern countries. I don't think Game of Thrones is even allowed to be played in China. If, if I had to guess, so I, I'd imagine the source material of the grittiness, and this is somewhat of a spoiler, so I'm going to give you three seconds to turn off this podcast because if you really care about Final Fantasy 16 spoilers, but it's pretty dark. <laughs> it's a pretty dark game. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, if we're playing Bull vs. Bear on Final Fantasy, I mean, I would give it two thumbs up. I mean, we talked about this, maybe it was last week or two weeks ago on the pod, just about how Square Enix, like, they're continuing to double down on on Final Fantasy and are going to do even more with it. And clearly they're investing heavily into these mainline installments and learning from others like Capcom from their previous successes on how to appeal to a larger global audience. And so um, I imagine this is doing that, but maybe they'll have to refine their exact approach going forward. I am curious though, maybe maybe one other, one other thumb thing. I just want to get your thoughts on threads. I don't have a strong opinion on threads. I'm just curious, like, <laughs> would you bet on threads actually 
like sticking the landing and succeeding as like some type of maybe not Twitter replacement, but just like another real option, a, a real long term option that is there. I'm curious. So maybe just quick thumbs, quick thumbs. <laughs> Three, two, one. Yep. Okay, we're all diverse. Um, we don't have to talk about this too much, but so I'm curious, why do you think it's going to stick and succeed? Uh, 100,000 users is a lot of users. 100 million, million. and 100 million users yeah. or more. Yeah. Uh, look, the, there are a lot of issues. Their algorithmic discovery is really bad. It's unclear if that's the audience that wants it. I had a long discussion this morning with some friends and colleagues about whether Threads is even a platform. Like Instagram in particular seems to be pretty abhorrent to gaming and doesn't seem to be suited towards it. Threads probably is in the same cohort as, as I guess some people have. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing is that uh, 100 million users is a lot of users and that's a weekend. Let's see where they start capping out. Because if they start capping out a few hundred million, suddenly it's it becomes an elephant in the room where they have enough momentum that we should acknowledge its ability to succeed in some way at some point in time. I, I give it a thumbs middle because I think, yes, it's had uh, great success so far, but I am really curious to see what happens with it. Um, and I think a lot of the success was just the ease of sign up, like the friction. I'm so frictionless based on the fact that it's just, you know, attached to your Instagram account. Um, what happens, I think, next is what does that content look like as to whether or not people actually stick around if they find that the the content is interesting enough, you know, people are willing to give it that very quick try, but if they're not finding it interesting or if they're finding it offensive or, you know, if they're not finding it as the, the content they're looking for, then I think they'll, they'll quickly move on. And it just needs to be differentiated. That's probably more why I lean thumbs down. I just don't think it's special or unique and we'll see. Maybe they'll, they'll change it. Um, also like I have never used Instagram. I've just never cared. And so I'm like, all right, well, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> but anyways, does, it's all kind of a side tangent. Does it need to be differentiated? Does it like so that's actually an interesting question, right? Because this is the biggest pushback against Final Fantasy 16 is that it's super differentiated versus its previous turn-based mechanics, as opposed to this real-time RPG type of mechanic. I would make the argument it doesn't need to be differentiated. It could literally just be slightly worse than Twitter, and people may want to use it just because from the novelty of it all. I don't know. I think longer term, I do think it matters. It, it only wouldn't matter if it's tapping into a new audience that Twitter hasn't really gotten in the same way that like Instagram copied stories from Snap and Snap was fine, but you know, Instagram still benefited from that feature. But this isn't a feature. It's not a new feature. It really is a new product. Um, so I don't know. I'm a bit more hesitant. It's not very often that these p- types of platforms really stick. Um, but yeah, the distribution is incredible. Anyways, interesting discussion. Didn't mean to go total tangent on threads, but moving on. <laughs> Your own thread, as it were. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, uh, Twitter actually took quite a quite a while to really catch on in the first place. People kind of forget that there was quite a few years where no one knew what Twitter was, no one cared. Uh, so obviously, this has the momentum from Instagram. But we'll see how the, how far that carries. And we've seen Twitter clones before in the past. So uh, I, I I personally, uh, I won't get too into it, but I, I, I see a lot of reasons why it might fail. But who knows? I've, I've, been, uh, I've seen a lot worse products succeed and makes me a little sad sometimes, but it, it does happen, you know? So some people have to succeed, some people have to fail and roll the dice. But uh, 
speaking of uh, older products taking a while, uh, terrible segue there, but uh, some stuff <laughs> around older games that I think uh, Dave wanted to get into around game archiving running some problems. Yeah, um, so there was a report on gamesindustry.biz that the uh, Video Game History Foundation revealed that about 87% of classic video games are unattainable by players. Um, now, for those that are wondering what does classic actually mean, in this particular case, it's games made before 2010, uh, probably because I'm the old guy that I think of classic games as being more like NES games. But, uh, but yeah, so games made before 2010. Um, now, for this, for me in particular, this one actually struck a chord with me because uh, just to very quickly dive into a little bit of my uh, career path in the world of video games. Uh, when I was growing up, before I really got into uh, professional video game development, there were no schools for video game development. Um, but I had the good fortune of working with a, a small franchise uh, here in Canada called Games Exchange, in which you can try out the game in the store before you bought it, new or used. Um, so for me, the fortunate part was that, you know, uh, store was empty, paperwork's done, cleaning's done. That meant I went behind the counter, grabbed a game, plugged it in, and tried it. I probably played, I, don't know, I would I would guess probably like 200 different games, 200, 300 different games while working there. And for me, there was a fantastic education because I was actually able to sit and play the game, see what I liked, what I didn't like. So, um, you know, later on in my career as a video game design and and having a good understanding of what the players are looking for that played a huge, huge part in that background. Um, so now there are organizations that are uh, working towards the preservation of games. Uh, more locally for me, at least here in Canada, there's the Sid Bolton collection at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, where they have over 14,000 games. Uh, but if you think of it, it's a fraction of what's been created over the years. And I actually started also thinking about, well, there's the classic games, but what happens when we try and, um, preserve the games of today. So, you know, back then it was a case of it's a, it's a new medium. Do we really want to spend the time to, you know, archive everything that comes out? Uh, but now that we realize how impactful video games are and we want to be able to uh, maintain those games because I think as everyone knows that um, having a good understanding of what a game is like, the best thing to do is play it. You know, as much as we have videos of games inside YouTube, et cetera, the best thing to do is actually play it. Um, and the biggest challenge right now is that, um, you know, where a game ends up is a lot different from that disc that you bought from the store. Um, just with all the, uh, you know, downloads, add-ons, be it, uh, you know, DLC or, uh, you know, micro, more micro content that gets added to the game, actually being able to preserve that, especially when the games are, requiring a back end. So for me, it's, uh, you know, as, as difficult as it is to see that a lot of, you know, a very large percentage of games not being available. Um, I actually wonder if uh, it's going to be even worse with the games of today. Like how are we actually going to preserve the games of today and, and be able to have that, uh, that ability for our future game developers to, to see and play the history of where the industry has been. There was one thing that was mentioned, I think, in the article that, that's worth touching on, which was they specifically said the different things that, like, they're not accessible to players unless with these exceptions. And the one they mentioned that I think is worth noting is piracy. And so, like, I personally think a lot of this when it comes to, like, pre-2010, but maybe not not as much in modern games, 
isn't so much uh, a physical thing or a technological thing. It's mostly a legal thing. If you just allowed the piracy, like actually most of these games are preserved. Uh, and like even MMOs, like I could still play Star Wars Galaxy today, like on a server emulator. I could still play Ultima Online today. Now, legally, probably not, right? And that's, I think, you know, it's worth noting, like as a footnote, that a lot of this is actually a legal problem, somewhat more than a technological problem. Um, potentially, but even like, so I worked on Need for Speed World Online, which was uh, one of EA's first uh, free-to-play ventures. Um, can't play that anymore. Um, same with a lot of other, you know, EA's free-to-play games, early games. Um, and a lot of games that do, you know, there are console games that you can play parts of, but you can't play all of it. Uh, you know, games that require, uh, you know, multiplayer, uh, or sorry, online uh, connections for playing multiplayer. Um, so I, I, yeah, I agree that there are some games, but I think for every Star Wars Galaxy that you can continue to play today, there are probably you know tens, dozens, hundreds of Need for Speed World Online that you can't play anymore. Yeah, not to even talk about the live ops versions of. Hey, do you believe World of Warcraft Classic to be a different game than the most modern, up to date version? Right, there's entire versions of Dota. Hearthstone that you'll never be able to play again because that's part of the memory. And especially as live ops became a bigger and bigger part, amusingly around the cutoff of old games, we're not going to see any of those games come back into its entirety. I I think about this on occasion when talking to Magic the Gathering players because they have physical cards and so they can like replicate what the game felt like during 2000. Uh, six time spiral or whatever, right? They're like, oh, we can just like grab those cards, find the rule book that's applicable for that era and then play that game. And certainly to Dave's point, that's just not possible. Yeah, I could see how the free-to-play, collaborative, more live live ops-driven games would be a challenge. But for everything else, do you think it could be something where like a game pass or the subscription model comes into play and like almost as just like an initiative or just like the classic, like the classic game initiative from Xbox or something to kind of, you know, plant their flag and try to ensure that some of these games can be playable or restored or something and put it on there. It seems like an interesting idea. Is there any merit to something like that actually being helpful or doable? So, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret on the game development side. Game companies are horrible, horrible, horrible at maintaining the the games themselves in terms of uh, you know all the source material. Um, you know, if you ever ask uh, you know a game team, uh, can we please have all of our art resources in one particular place? You will get well. Bob's got such and such on his local machine, so we don't know where he is. Uh, you know, Samantha's got the following things, and she's now working on a different team. And we think that their her computer then got re- you know possessed by the, her original team. Like that material is just everywhere. So trying to actually have that ability to uh, properly archive games is really challenging, unless the game teams themselves also play a part in stepping in that. Um, you know, if you think of uh, being able to uh, maintain, uh, you know, film or books, it's a lot easier to do that. Uh, you know, uh, go to uh, the U.S. Library of uh, the Congress Library. 
it's an American thing. I don't remember exactly how it is, but there's a book of everything, you know, pretty much a book, all the books there, right? Well, it's pretty easy to store a book um, because you don't have to recompile the book for a different platform when uh, when something else comes out. Um, but in games, it's just that that much more difficult. So I, I really do hope that we can get there. It's but it's going to require a lot of work by a lot of people. Well, that's why I think the legal angle is important to to observe in the sense that like there are a lot of dedicated fans out there to a lot of games, even obscure ones that are willing to like dig up those source files that are willing to like recreate that old content to the best of their ability that are willing to build server emulators for online games. And a lot of them will get cease and desists, especially if it happens to be, say, a Star Wars game, right? Uh, you know, some of these companies are overly aggressive. And I think if there was a carve out of some kind to say, like, like for example, there's some games you could play on Internet Archive, right? If there was a carve out to say, like, hey, you you could only play these games, like people, people are allowed to do these emulations, et cetera, et cetera. But the the only venue in which you could play it is this digital library of Congress online where yeah. like, we're just, we're going to safeguard the venue so people can't do this at home or whatever, like outside of that uh, as a carve out. And like, that's, that's, I feel like the compromise to say like, you know, like, like internet archive technically is pirating the whole internet, right? Cause it's making copies of all these websites from all the different eras. But it's, if we don't legally allow some exception for fans yeah. to be able to fix and, the issue. And licensing does come into a big part of that. And it, it may not be as you know simple as I have the Star Wars license. It could be something as small as, well, my license for this one particular song ran out that I use inside the game. And therefore, I can't sell it either. I have to figure out how to take that song out or I can't sell it anymore. Yeah, you guys are... Okay, so another lifetime ago, I did a lot of work with... Uh, the EFF and Fight for the Future, and, and you're you're starting to grasp upon a lot of these headache things. But here are some macro issues everyone should think about. And and if you're listening and you're a particular a U.S. citizen, um, these are things you should care about. And I highly recommend um, going checking out EFF.org and seeing their advocacy of this. The biggest issue right now we have in America when it comes to uh, trademarks, patents, but more importantly, the copyright issue is one enforcement. And two, the adjudication of fair use, right? So in terms of the enforcement thing, unfortunately, the owner of these marks have to go after everyone because if they don't, that creates case law that allows them to then say, hey, you're not actually enforcing your trademark. Therefore, we will remove the trademark for you. That sucks. There's really not much way around it. If there's ever an interest for people who are listening to Novik for having uh, some trademark people on this, on this podcast, I have to know a bunch of them. Happy to um, facilitate that, but it's that is always a headache. It sucks that they don't really have a choice but to enforce these rules and marks. The second thing is that the biggest defense that we have typically is fair use, uh, and that is a carve out that's been there for decades. But the downside of fair use is that you can only figure out if it's fair use as adjudicated by a court of law, <laughs> and so the actual cost necessary to figure out if your fair use is fair use is incredibly expensive. And this is true not only for the video games, but also for video and music and everything else. And it's such a headache and no one wants to do it. And so we have what we call this like issue with like the normative constraint versus the reality of the freaking world. And I certainly think, Devin, to your point, that would be really awesome to allow to happen. I'd imagine what we need is less a library of Congress and more just a trillion dollars. If someone out there is a multi-billionaire, like a little bit like what the South Park guys 
are are doing with um, Casa Bonita in Denver, where it's like this awesome hobby project. If there's some wealthy individual out there, instead of building a rocket ship that takes us to space, we have enough of those people. If you can work instead on funding the defense of fair use such that we can have this, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that's what that's what I mean. Like, I, I feel like it almost has to be like that that Library of Congress kind of thing, where like there's a a specific exception. Like, you have to defend your trademark everywhere else. You have to do all these other things. All the normal rules still apply to everywhere else, but this specific area, this online digital museum, where like this stuff is allowed, and like that feels like the only way you could kind of like box it in to make some kind of like legal exception. Because as you said, it's like such a huge thorny issue. Like if you got a machete away, all these things, best you could get is like a little tiny clearing, right? That it, And that's all I guess we can hope for. And until then, I guess we all just have to pirate games and then just we don't talk about it, I guess, uh, when they're old enough that we can't buy them. Right. Navik is not saying to pirate games. No, to like- <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> But at least there are some some subscription services and stuff like uh, the 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 Nintendo One, for example, on Nintendo Online that will preserve some old stuff. And like and that is part of the reason why you don't see a lot of the, you know, sort of legalization of these older things because, of course, it gives them an opportunity to resell it. But unfortunately, even sometimes when they resell it, like it doesn't work the same as it used to. Like I specifically bought like the Command and Conquer remastered because I'm one of the few fans of Command & Conquer 4. And I load it up, and I'm like, cool, like I could play this again. Like It looks like it's all working. And, like I can't play it at all. Like It just won't work, because the servers are dead. And like they still sold me the game, no problem. Hey, go ahead, please buy it. But uh, good luck playing it like in any form other than versus AI. Even though, in theory, it has like just normal matchmaking, land mode. I could see my friend. We could friend each other. Just can't play together. So those kinds of situations, unfortunately, I think are going to kind of crop up uh, you know, unless again, people are allowed to fix them for the companies. Cause as Dave said, the companies are notoriously bad. And I watched a whole documentary on the, um, the command and conquer remasters and the amount of work they had to do just to dig up all those kinds of files and things. Exactly what Dave was saying. Like it was a massive undertaking just to recreate those. Like what you'd think, Oh, they just pull it off a shelf. Right. And just put it, put it back on the, on the EA store. Right. Like, no, it doesn't sadly does not work like that. And even the, the amount of work, I imagine that goes into Nintendo re-releasing their stuff, uh, the retro games on, like they even did on the Wii store, the Wii U store, and now they're doing like on the Nintendo store. That's still like, I imagine a bit of work, even if sometimes they're kind of shoehorning an emulator and a ROM in there, uh, still requires some work to do that. So unfortunately, I think a bit of a sticky topic, but uh, I think one one worth discussing, just maybe not uh, on a less legally minded podcast, I suppose. Uh, but, but anyways, uh, we did have a, another legal issue, though, that we want to discuss quickly as well, which was around more problems with generative AI. Who would have thought that, you know, that maybe it's causing some uh, some legal headaches? <laughs> that it is. Uh, so has come out that uh, Sarah Silverman, along with two authors, uh, Christopher Golden and Richard Kadri, are suing uh, ChatGBT developer OpenAI and uh, as well as Meta. Uh, uh, because they're using their uh, material in their training data, uh, and this, these aren't the first lawsuits coming about. Um, you know, we've got uh, Getty Images suing uh, Stable Diffusion for their use of images inside their training models. Um, but we're now getting to the point where you know there are serious questions about the data sets that people are using inside these uh, inside the training models. Um, 
And as we start covering in, you know, both visual, written copyright, uh, we'll be getting to audio shortly, I'm sure, with performers, uh, you know, already, uh, you know, talking about, well, people are, 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 you know, creating versions of what I'm saying without me actually saying them. So we very much prefer they didn't get to that point. Um, we're now getting into a range where it, it becomes very dangerous for developers who want to uh, stay on the right side of uh, the legal world uh, in terms of what they're using. So um, I think we've gotten to the point now where you know those that work inside real money are very familiar with the term KYC or know your customer or consumer or a variation of that. Uh, I'm suggesting that developers now work with a variation of that, which is KYDS, which is know your data set. Um, if you're working with generative AI data sets that have the potential for uh, including materials that are copywritten and, and are not able to, uh, you're not able to verify that you have the rights to use them, you are potentially running into some challenges. Uh, already Steam has said that they're not going to accept uh, games that uh, were where the developers aren't able to uh, verify what the data sources are for their data sets. It's not that they're saying you can't use generative AI or, or any sort of other variation of generated uh, content. Um, it just has to be inside a verified data set. So starting to see this now as well as uh, where companies are promoting their generative AI uh, um, uh, products. Uh, Unity has stated that they own the data sets they use for their own particular um, generative AI products, but they they aren't necessarily um, you know showing exactly what it is that they're pulling from. Uh, Adobe Gingerbread uh, they've outright stated that they 100% own all of the content inside the database that they use for their training. So um, you know as we start getting to the point of uh, if if teams need to know exactly what their data sets are and that they have 100% rights to it, uh, the question that starts coming up in my head is that um, will, will generative AI end up being the thing that allows small companies to create content to the same level as large companies? And the reason why I'm asking that question is, is that if you think of uh, needing to create that generative data or that data set before using uh, AI on it, what does that cost? What is the time requirement in order to create that artwork? And if you think about the teams that have the head set uh, head start in terms of having that wealth of material, it's actually the companies that have very large franchises already in place. So if you think of uh, Activision, Call of Duty. You know, if they want to unleash uh, generative AI and creating a whole bunch of new content, well, they've got a very large data set already to play with. If someone is starting to create a brand new game, um, they're going to have to create, uh, you know, they potentially have to create their own set, their own data set before they can start working with uh, the AI tool sets to be able to create the new content. So, you know, with those with those in mind, the, you know, the, the potential for time or for cost uh, for smaller teams uh, required. Is it going to be a case of uh, the larger teams are going to be able to use generative AI to set uh, very, very high benchmarks or, or just have content, you know, huge content 
fortresses in terms of uh, the size of the games, or will they make it cheaper and then be able to compete against uh, smaller teams? And I think that's actually a question that I have for the panel. You know, if we are getting to the point where it becomes that much more restrictive in usage, uh, who is it really going to benefit? So, and and apologies for like one, I'm not a lawyer, so please, please, and and this is very very americocentric but i think we're fortunate in that if we're not american-centric we're chinese-centric in the game industry and for chinese-centric none of this matters so like let's stick with the american framework here i like one i actually will go on record and saying that i think there's no shot in how this case wins uh, i think the actual mechanisms around this data set of infringement is completely there's a great amount of case law that we can draw from that will invalidate this accord in part because if you think about the closest corollary I think is certainly Google Books. And if you think about the case law that came out in about 10, 15, maybe 10, not that one, but like the Authors Guild versus Google. For those of you who don't know, basically Google went and digitized all of the books that they could find and kept doing so. And the Authors Guild was like, hey, this is an infringing use of our work. It went up the appeal process. In summary, it concluded two main things. One, that even though they weren't authorized and had no rights to digitize the copyright protected works and create a new functionality on top of it and display snippets from that work. All of these things were non-infringing fair use, not to use fair use all over, over again, but the transformative nature of that information. The fact that you're taking this, ingesting this thing, that's very transformative, that the actual display of the specific copyrighted materials were not was very limited and that didn't produce a market substitution to the protected asset class meant that fair use was unequivocally upheld in that court. Two, that because the digitized versions were consistent with the way that copyright law is applied, that it wasn't at all infringement. And this was upheld multiple times. Now, I'm I'm sure I'm sure that like people don't want to hear the legal nature of this. And please talk to like CC Shea or Matt Everett or or um, or like you know actual freaking or Abi. Um, or Adi Kamdar over yet, but like there are actual legal scholars who know this kind of stuff. Um, Citron's a great person. Like everyone at Berkman Center, Harvard's great. But the reason why we have these protections, and I can't emphasize this enough, is exactly because of what Dave said. If it's actually the case where, like, this is one of those like Trojan horses that give me a headache all the time. If it's actually the case that we protect the quote unquote authors in this case, Dave's outcome is the reality. That in protecting Sarah, Sarah, like whoever the authors are, we end up disenfranchising the ability for new and smaller companies and people who are doing some innovative things to create really cool content. And that is the downside. Now, what's amusing as a result of this is that you always take beloved children's authors or beloved musicians as your Trojan horse. This is like the 101 case law example. You take them as your Trojan horse. You get public appeal behind them. But in reality, the implication of some of this application, I think, is going to be massively negative. And I just like don't think there's a chance in hell it's going to succeed. I actually kind of agree. Honestly, my take is just I wish people would chill, like just calm down. Like, can we can we have something nice for a moment and just like enjoy <laughs> for progress? Five minutes. Yeah for, yeah, for five minutes, please, before lawyers get involved. Thank you. Um, that's that that's my my lead in. But I think I. I think I agree with what Seb is saying. I, I doubt these cases will win. It is interesting. Like something like OpenAI, it really is like one of the largest 
ask for forgiveness, not permission, (laughs) Uh, you know, examples in modern business history. And they're probably going to pull it off and not just them, but a bunch of the other like leading AI companies. So even if they're even if there are like new legal stipulations that get get put into place and rules that are established that limit what those models can do, those models are soon, even if they have to be tweaked, still going to be legally usable. Um, and two, companies like OpenAI are positioning themselves to help establish like the like the, the legal framework since they're you know like just now in the discussion with governments, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see how that that shakes up. I think the question now is just um, in the meantime, while we wait for clarity, what do you as a business? Where do you fall um, from ask for forgiveness to ask for permission and I think it's just going to be a different answer for different companies. Um, and again, I'm not a lawyer, and most lawyers would just probably tell you to do the most conservative thing. But I think it's just clear that larger companies have more to lose, whereas smaller companies maybe don't. Um, uh, but also, like, it depends on your position as a type of company, right? Like, if you're creating tools um, and maybe not games, like, if you're waiting for permission, you're probably not going to win. And someone else is going to build the brand, build the market share um, in your place. And as a game, like, you know, you know how to make games the old way. You can kind of toe the line and figure out how you want to approach it. And that's okay. But honestly, my take on some of this is that like with Valve, for example, I think they overstepped. Like, I don't think it's in their, like, I don't think it's their position to say like, hey, we should accept games or not that use generative AI where the teams do or don't own the underlying data. Because one, it's not actually a like legally established yet. Two, it's different from crypto in the sense that like them as a marketplace where they have to follow know your customer laws and money laundering laws and things like that, that doesn't apply to gen AI. And honestly, I would think even just like Section 230, which is like the kind of the set of laws that establishes like what platforms are liable for the press, like the the liability should fall on those that are making games, not the platform. And Valve should just stay out, like let people do their thing, let the laws be established. And then maybe once the laws are established, yeah, maybe you come up with some kind of rule. But my goodness, it just feels like monopolistic overstep right now. And again, can we just chill and have something nice for five minutes? <laughs> the answer is no. And by the way, I don't blame the answer being no, <laughs> right? Like, like here, here's the flip side just for people who are curious as to why uh, writers in particular are always overzealous in this regard. It's because they've gotten screwed like by the movie industry, by like every step of the way. Like, you know, it's like, I, I don't mind them overstepping. It's just one of those weird moments in time, which we see occasionally when politics meets lawsuits, where the person you want to protect, like, I am a huge fan of authors. I really want to protect their rights. That seems really great. I just don't think this is the way you should do it. And if you do it this way, you're setting yourself up for massive, um, uh, like the world they've set up where basically the only people who can make interesting high-end content are the ones who own all the subscriptions because in Aaron's world, all the companies have rolled up into one single monolith and they're the only ones who have the rights to their own assets who are able Not to generate world. their own thing. <laughs> I mean, I can, I, and from the, I mean, from the creator's perspective, I can also definitely see it. So, um, you know, if you can imagine, 
uh, you know, going to ChatGPT or, or whomever and say, um, write me a novel in the form of John Grissom. And all of a sudden, you've got the potential for you know a novel that is in a style that millions and millions of people have enjoyed over the years. Uh, and without any real work, you've now got something that has the potential to be sold. Um, or uh, I'll use a, a personal example. There was a game that uh, I worked on uh, a while back and um, saw a competing game come out. And I would swear that they took our textures and just applied them directly into their game. Uh, a case of just basically just copying our material and putting it into their material. Um, and that was work that we did and undertook and then, you know, was, was taken into the game. Um, so, you know, there's, I think that from the artist perspective, it's we've put a lot of work into something and then to have somebody else take advantage of that work without them doing the work. Um, you know, feels like, uh, you know, as you said, said writers have been screwed for, for so, so long, you know, artists feeling like they're, they're, they're being screwed in that it's, way. It, it's so line? hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so hard. Cause so let's just be clear, right? Game mechanic. Like if you make a book in the style of John Grisham, that's transformative. That's not trans like copyrightable at all. Right. Game mechanics. Oh my God, we're going to so many deep, the game mechanic, the mechanic of the game cannot be copyrighted. That's why there's no such thing. Like a lot of these rules around um, like match three games, that is a style of game that cannot be copyrighted. Like it can, it won't stand up in American courts. Look, I have no idea about European courts. They're a crazy another world. So maybe they will do something or something, but like copyright law. And this, as to your point, Dave, on your assets, right? Like if their assets in of themselves were stolen, that's, that's just theft and that sucks and that's awful. But the way copyright is implied is the moment the game becomes an expression of art that is the moment in which it becomes copyrightable, right? And so if you were to, for example, use a aesthetic that's like vampire-esque, that's not really copyrightable. And this is actually one of the fun things if you see what the happy guys have done with like Survivor IO. A lot of that game mechanic is just straight ripped from Survive the Zombies, like it's, or Vampire Survivors rather. Straight ripped, like the upgrading, the how you get to the upgrade, all ripped, totally fine because we don't want to stand in the way of innovation, right? And th that I think is the is the weirdness of it all. There, there's a, um, we all stand on the shoulders of giants is the phrase that people say all the time. And it's just really hard to figure out what's owned by who. And I, for one, am always on the side of, hey, you know, if we don't know, to Aaron's point, let's just ask the lawyers to chill and, and see where this thing ends up. <laughs> <laughs> lawyers chilling i don't know if that's possible um the last thing i was going to say is just that i agree there's a difference between like copying and pasting like mickey mouse into what you're doing or like your exact same background versus uh just being inspired by something um in the same way that like we all as individuals can be inspired from each other and you know take the little bits of the best of all of us to create something new letting ai do the same thing as an extension of us makes a lot of sense. It's just a question of where you draw the line. Anyways, this is interesting. As we've said several times, we're not lawyers. If you actually would be interested in maybe hearing from lawyers or someone who actually knows more about what they're talking about and you've made it this far into the podcast, just leave us a comment and 
um, let us know and maybe we can figure out how to orchestrate something. Uh, I could see how that could be of interest to a lot of people, but just just let us know. Cool. Well, of course, you know, let us know at podcast at, at novic.co. Uh, if you want to email, of course, as well for any feedback or comments. One last uh, smoke bomb I want to throw before before we peace out is uh, a clarification on the, the the lawsuit over the uh, the AI as well. It was specifically because it was able to generate book summaries. So I guess in this way, the authors are kind of admitting that the summaries are probably better than just buying the book, and people will read that and go, "No, nah, I'm good," and pass on it. So maybe they're just admitting their their quality is not that great. I don't know. Just, just throwing that out there. But anyways, uh, I want to thank, of course, our panelists as always. I look forward to, of course, seeing everyone here again uh, as always with, with each of these episodes. And of course, you, the listener as well, for, for sticking around through all the legal talk. Again, make sure to let us know if you'd like to hear more of it because it is uh, obviously something that affects everyone uh, all the time, whether you like it or not to an extent, right? So good stuff to dig into. But thanks again for tuning in. And of course, we will see you all next week and have a great weekend until then. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.